Open your Bibles to Mark chapter 8. Mark chapter 8. We're uh, going to deal with two particular stories, two events in uh, Jesus' life, starting in verse 11 and uh, going down to verse, or starting in verse 10, going down to verse 21. I have, uh, in my lifetime, have uh, probably done almost every job under the planet except for food service or customer service, okay? Um, if it has to do with your hands, mechanics, or whatever, I've, I've done that. And uh, back in 1986, I was working for a heating and air conditioning contractor. And one of our jobs was to put in, like, uh, stoves and uh, hood uh, for the stoves in commercial kitchens. And we would make these duct, the ductwork that vented out this exhaust. And it all had to be made out of black iron, which you had to weld all the seams. So you'd have a four-sided duct, and you would weld it. This might be too much too much detail for you. But here's the deal. My boss bought this brand new welder and handed me a mask and says, go weld. So I spent 10 hours under the mask welding this thing. He bought the wrong mask, okay? Which if you know anything about welding, I got a lot of UV light. And I went home that night, man, it was like there was a handful of gravel in both eyes. And I looked in the mirror and when I would squint, the eye, the skin on my eyes would wrinkle up every time I would... Would, would squint. And I went to the doctor and they said, well, you, you almost ruined your eyes. So they patched my eyes up and for three days I was blind. Not that I couldn't see, but, but the experience was I couldn't look at light. I had to kind of guard my eyes for a time for healing. Now, I learned some things about blindness during that episode. I didn't like it. I'm not very good at it. But, it, but I've used that one moment to, to talk about the spiritual connection to the heart a thousand times. And I'm going to use it again today. Um, we're going to talk about this issue of, of blindness, spiritually speaking, the condition of the human heart. And uh, in fact, the text itself only has one little question in it in verse 18 that leads to this subject matter of our eyes, our spiritual eyes. It's the question that Jesus asks his disciples, do you have eyes and still not see? Which, which I suppose should be like this umbrella question over everything in this story. It's the question that someone should ask you, or maybe Jesus should ask you, that do you really have eyes? Do you perceive things but not get the point? And, and the issue is going to come up in the person of Christ, who he is and what he claims to be. And so um, that's the point of this, this particular discussion today. And we're going to see it in two particular events. One is that Jesus has a, an encounter with the religious leaders, and he has an encounter with his disciples, and both of those screen volumes about this condition of spiritual blindness, and specifically the, u- the universality of, of blindness, but that it is temporary to some and permanent to others. And I, I want you to lean into it and listen very carefully, because I think, I think in this story you're going to discover freedom again. I think you're going to discover how, how truly um, amazing the grace of God is, if you will believe. And therein lies the tension. That last question, if you will. And so we got to unpack this, all right? I, um, when I was writing this down, I, I, I knew that I had to make a qualifier, and that is to not apologize specifically, but warn you ahead of time, what we're about to do for the next 10 minutes is not going to be fun. Because if we're going to seriously talk about the issue of spiritual blindness of the human heart, then we have to talk about the condition of the human heart, the problem And I don't know why you come to church. I have to believe some of you. And God bless you. I'm so glad you're here. There's a tank over there, and your friends or your loved ones are going to get baptized after after we're done with this sermon. And you're here for that only. Your mom and dad, uncle, aunt, whatever. You you didn't come for a discussion on your condition of your heart. And I and I 
I feel sort of a little bit bad about that, but I know that God is so good that he has something to say, maybe to you today. And so I'm prepared to, to uh, maybe um, not do a happy, happy message, especially for this first 10 minutes, because we have to deal with this universal problem that everybody who's ever been born has been born with. And it's the condition of the human heart, that it is truly, truly spiritually blind. It is almost impossible. In fact, it isn't possible to exaggerate that statement. Totally, totally blind. And that goes against everything in our human inclination wants to think. Here's what we think. Blind? Mm -mm. Fuzzy, maybe. Maybe things are a little unclear. Maybe I don't know exactly everything that's true, but I'm not blind. I've got some things figured out. I, I know this and I know that or I don't know that and I don't know this or whatever, but I'm just not, I'm not blind though. <laughs> there, is a, there is some who say, you know what my problem is? I just need a little motivation. You know, it's like me and working out. I know I should be healthy, but I won't do what I need to. Some think they need a, little, a few changes, make, make a few adjustments in your life and you're not blind, you just need a little bit of work. Um, and that isn't true. Every, every, every other religious system in the world other than orthodox biblical Christianity has as its foundational understanding that there isn't such a thing as spiritual blindness. Did you know that? Because every other system declares that there's something you can do to deal with your problems. Only the Bible and only Jesus say the problem is beyond you. It's the condition of spiritual blindness. Okay, and we have to unpack this this morning. Um, here's some of us would say of, of our position or what we understand or don't understand is that what you need is uh, some evidence. Your problem isn't blindness, you're just skeptical. It wasn't clear enough, it wasn't obvious enough, that God hasn't done enough for you, hasn't showed up enough in some amazing ways, and you've made a prayer, you said something out loud to God in heaven, God, if you are, will you do? And you put out these kind of, these kind of roadblocks to God to prove himself to you, and you think, well, that will help you, but I want you to know, here's the sad part of this story, none of that will change your heart. In fact, when John, the, the gospel writer, was talking about Jesus, he's setting up this whole narrative about the glory of God come to men in the person of Jesus Christ. This is how he starts out the narrative. The light, Jesus, referring to Christ, shines in the darkness, and the darkness didn't understand it. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, and yet the world did not even know him. He came to his own and his own rejected him. That's how the Gospel of John starts out. He was here. He was among us. He made what we have and, and yet we don't see him. We don't recognize him. That describes the problem pretty clearly. That we can have Jesus. We can have this light that John talks about in our presence. We can see it and we can touch it and we can hear it. You can sit in sermons. You can sense it. But you're never going to ever wrap your arms around it. Because the human heart is blind. You can watch him if you're into the gospel story. You can watch him do miracle after miracle after miracle. Crippled people walk, blind people see, lepers are clean, dead are raised to life. You can see him over and over again. In fact, John in his narrative at the end said if, if someone were to write down all that Jesus did, because there's so much that he did, that if they were to write down all that he did, you couldn't, the world couldn't contain the books of all the stories of all the things that Jesus has done. And so, here's what we do with those stories. Nah. 
not real. I need some more. I need some more proof. I need some more evidence. You can have, as the people of Israel had, you can have the Old Testament scriptures that pointed to this Messiah, this coming one, this promise, and he can show up and fulfill all those prophecies and all their specificness in such a way that only one man could do it, and yet they can't see him. They reject him. Not even, not even able to see a little bit. The blindness of the heart of man is so profound, it does not matter. No matter what God does, no matter what God does in, in his miraculous power, you cannot, will not see it. In fact, since we're all depressing each other with our condition, let me give you what the Apostle Paul wrote about our condition. Tell me if this doesn't ring true in our world the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth, hold down the truth of God. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his divisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. In other words, look outside. You don't have an excuse. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. That is the picture of the heart being spiritually blind. That's the effects of the fall. In fact, one writer kind of penciled out kind of what he would call the tears of blindness. And he would start out by saying the blindness is natural. It comes natural to us. First Corinthians, Paul says in chapter 2, natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God because they're foolishness to him. Natural man, without any kind of supernatural intervention, looks at the things that God does, and God says and says, what a joke. Crippled people believe that. Not intelligent people. Natural man rejects those things. It, it gets worse, by the way, because John says in chapter 3 that not only is, are we by nature in the dark, we prefer the dark, we love the darkness, he says, and this is the judgment. The light, Jesus, has come into the world, and people love the darkness rather than the light because they love their wicked deeds. It, it gets worse. There's an adversary called Satan, and his job is to blind the eyes of people, in fact, Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4, the God of this world who is Satan has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. Okay? And it can get worse. The Bible talks about this thing called sovereign blindness. That eventually after hearing and, and seeing or being around in context with things called truth, if you continue to reject and reject and reject God's only provision for your salvation, here's what happens. God simply says, no more. And you'll be stuck in this condition called permanent spiritual blindness and you can't back up from. And ultimately, Jesus, when he was talking about this judgment to come that sinners are going to have to endure, I don't want, I'm not happy telling you this, but Jesus said of himself, I'm calling this place outer darkness. It is like the, the pit, it's the last stop in our blindness is that what we spend an eternity doing is not seeing anything or perceiving anything of God in our punishment. The tears of, the tears of, of blindness. And here's all I want you to see. Mankind's spiritual blindness is deep, it's dark, and it's devastating. And you can't medicate it, and you can't educate it. You, you, you can't address it with religion. You, you can't even be sincere enough to fix this problem. There isn't anything you can do at all to make that go away on your own. Nothing. 
By nature, we are blind. By our nature, we love the blindness. We are teased by Satan to go deeper and darker in our, darker in our blindness. God in his sovereignty will leave us some in our darkness forever. Everyone here, please don't be offended by this. Myself included, every elder that's here, every person who thinks they know a lot about Jesus, everyone here and everyone you know and everyone who's ever been born is in that condition. Unless, unless God doesn't do something. Something outside of us, something for us, right? Okay? We are completely spiritual blind. This text that we're looking at today describes that condition but describes two categories of that blindness. One is a permanent blindness and the other is a temporary blindness. And in this room, there are some of both. Some in here who are just never going to see. And some of us in here, all of us in here, the rest of us in here see only a little, okay? And that's the conclusion of these two stories. One talks about the devastating effects of this blindness. The other one talks about the humbling effects of God's grace to allow us to see anything, okay? So let's unpack this first story, starting in verse 10. It is the story of Jesus confronting or being confronted by the Pharisees, and it's the discussion of this condition called permanent blindness. Here's what he says in verse 10. And immediately he got into the boat with his disciples and went to the district of Dalmanutha. The Pharisees came and began to argue with him, seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. And he sighed deeply in his spirit and said, why does this generation seek a sign? Truly I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. And he left them and got into the boat again and, and went to the other side. Let me unpack this a little bit. This, is, uh, this location, Dalmanutha, is, is really close to Capernaum. It is the home turf for Jesus. It's his base of operations. This is where Jesus has been doing most of his work from, and he's back there in his home territory. If you remember, if you were here last week, Jesus was in a Gentile, predominantly Gentile region, and he healed that, remember that woman, that uh, Syrophoenician woman that had a daughter that was demon-possessed? He healed her. The man that was um, deaf and had a speech impediment, he healed him. And then ultimately, he was on the hillside with thousands, some 20,000 Gentiles, and it was lunchtime, and they didn't have anything to eat, and so Jesus does a miracle of providing bread and fish in a miraculous way to thousands of people. Those were the stories that we saw last week, particularly in this Gentile region. And the con conclusion of that story, I think what Mark's point of gathering these, these narratives together and putting them there in one, that one place, it was to make the point that this gospel, this, this, this truth of God's grace is available not just to Jews, but to anybody who would put their faith and trust in Jesus. And so he gives this grace as a demonstration to people outside of the, of the Hebrew people. Now in verse 11, Jesus comes back home. He's back at Capernaum. And the text tells us that the Pharisees came out to argue. Now, just to make this really clear, th this wasn't like the Pharisees came out to say, yo, Jesus, and some, something happened and it turned bad and they got into a little argument. No, they came out with the intention of accusation, Okay. It was a planned confrontation. Jesus has been gone for weeks and weeks and weeks. The only reason, the only way that the Pharisees show up right as soon as Jesus gets back is they probably have a lookout because they have an intention. They want to confront Jesus. They want to expose him publicly. And I told you a few weeks ago that we are way past any legitimate questions coming from the Pharisees. They are not looking for answers. They're not confused. They've already made up their mind about Jesus. They don't like him. 
He, he's got to go. In fact, if you go back to chapter 7, you don't have to turn there, but in, in chapter 7, when the, the disciples of Christ weren't washing their hands appropriately so in a ceremonial way, it was the Pharisees who came, not to ask a question about why, what don't we understand, but make the charge that you're not righteous like we are. And we have more of the same here going on. This confrontation has, has, has nothing to do with a lack of understanding. Here's what they know. And here's why they confronted Jesus. We hate you. We're, we're done with you. You've preached this message of repentance. We hate that. You're talking about grace by faith. We hate that. We hate everything you stand for, Jesus. That's what this confrontation is from. Because the Pharisees are self-made men. They are self-righteous men. They've spent their life working on themselves to such a degree that that they think all of their self-effort has merited something with God. Like God has kept notes on them and so proud, so proud of your efforts that, that he's keeping notes on that. And so they confront Jesus. Um, in the midst of this crowd to discredit him because they hate him. They hate the truth of Jesus. And I think there's some things to, to unpack in, in, in this confrontation that tell us the condition or, or things that are universally true for people who are completely, permanently blind to the grace of God. Here, here's the first thing that I think sticks out to me. Um, in fact, you have to drag in Matthew's account from chapter 16 of Matthew to get this, but this kind of permanent spiritual blindness loves company. Matthew tells us that it wasn't just the Pharisees that were there. It was the Sadducees that were there. Now, to us in Gilbert, Arizona, 2015, doesn't matter. Who cares? Sadducees, Pharisees, they're all alike to me. But that's not true. So let me describe to you the oddness of these two groups, and then you'll see why this darkness loves company. Um, The Sadducees, these were the men who kind of ran the the temple business, okay? Okay. Their, their job was to make certain sacrifices and offerings were taken care of in an appropriate way. And here's what they did with their position. They got filthy rich on it, okay? And this is how they did it. If you brought a sacrifice from home, your little lamb that you grew up, this spotless lamb that you were to offer God for a, an atonement sacrifice, they would, they would find something wrong with it. Ah, it's got a hangnail. You can't use this little goat. And so they would say, hey, but lucky day, we have one. We have one that counts. Um, but it's going to cost you. And so they would charge exorbitant prices for these, these sacrifices, okay? If you brought one, they could sell you one, but it would cost you. If you brought your offering, your money offering, they would look at your money and say, ah, that's not clean. But we happen to have clean money over here. If you'd like to exchange it, it only cost you. And so you can see this racket they had going on. These guys were crooks in a, in a real way, exhorting money from these people. These guys also denied anything supernatural. So things like the resurrection, they denied. They denied angels and they denied miracles. They uh, fundamentally didn't have any convictions about moral issues, right or wrong, like whatever, to each his own. They were okay with that. They were secular. They were liberal. They loved the Greek culture. They didn't have any problem being compromisers. Sounds like us. When I say us, I'm talking about us, like America, 2015. I don't care if you call yourself a Christian or not. We are so good at crossing the line, blurring the line between what it means to really believe in holiness, right? Being set apart because we go where they go. We do what they do. We believe what they believe. We own it, right? And that's why the world can look at the church and go, you know what you are? You're a hypocrite. You got me because I am. We are, in essence, just picture your mind. If there's anything about compromising your beliefs, you are a Sadducee, okay? 
Now, let me compare it to the Pharisees. Pharisees, we, we've studied this enough to kind of have a, you know, a, uh, a dislike for these guys. These are the religious extreme. They're legalists. They invent laws. In fact, it's their job to write laws, to bury people under the duty and performance. Because in their minds, in essence, you can work your way out of your problem. You can build a ladder in these rungs and become good enough, right? They hated, just as the opposite of the Sadducees, they hated the Greek culture. They hated the Romans. They hated non-Jews. They separated themselves from anything that they determined would make them unclean. They were total separatists. But here's the point that I want to make by comparing and contrasting those two people, those two people groups showing up at the same time to confront Jesus. These, ha- these two groups have nothing in common. They despised each other. Except when it came to what they thought of Jesus. What they thought about this message of repentance or grace and faith, they both could come to agreement on that. We might not like each other, but we can join arms to deal with him. And there's some truth in this permanent spiritual blind condition that that applies to our day. If you're in the darkness, you're comfortable with people in the darkness. It doesn't even matter if they're your enemies. In fact, you're more comfortable around people in the darkness than you are with people of righteousness because it doesn't confront. It doesn't deal with your heart. That's the condition of the dark heart, of the permanently dark. Here's the second thing that sticks out to me about the permanent spiritual blindness at least the Pharisees had, and that is this, that it it refuses, this heart refuses to see the obvious. Verse 11, they're saying, give us a sign, give us a sign. Now, again, that wasn't a legitimate question. It was a trap in their minds to Jesus. They had a superstitious belief that God could do, only God could do heavenly miracles. And only demons could do only earthly miracles. And so we've got a little test for Jesus. In fact, it'll expose him and we'll win this this argument. And so this is how they thought about it in their mind. They concluded in their mind that he is not from God. He is not the Messiah. So if we put a test to him to do some kind of miracle, he can't do it, so we'll win. All right? Or they thought to themselves, if he does what we think he might do, like just refuse to do it and not play along, then we'll just call him a fraud. Because the only reason he wouldn't is because he can't, and so he's exposed there. Or the fact is, if he does something that they're, they've seen before, like an earthly miracle, well, we can just write that off too, because after all, we've already said that he does these things to the power of Satan. Didn't they say that in chapter 3? We, we can write off everything he does and expose him, and all these people watching, we can call him out as a, as a fraud. They weren't asking for a sign so that they could believe. It's not like they haven't had enough signs already correct? Over and over again, in just seven chapters, we've seen the power of God through Jesus, the miracles, the people responding to it, people being changed, and yet they're, they're, they don't need a sign. And, and that's, that's one of the effects of a permanent spiritually blind heart, and that is it refuses to see the obvious. L- let me prove my point a little bit I'm going to tell you a short, brief little story about a, a man you're probably familiar with. His name is Nicodemus. Anybody heard that name before? Nicodemus, if you remember, was a Pharisee. He's one of these guys. Nicodemus happened to be, he was a leader of one of these guys. He was considered the Pharisee of the Pharisees. He, he led the charge. He was the general of the, of the army, okay? Nicodemus has a moment with Jesus. And look at what he says, chapter 3 of John. And now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. 
This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know. Who's we? Us, us Pharisees. We know that you are a teacher come from God. For no one can do these things, these signs that you do unless God is with you. What did they know? Behind the scenes, how did they talk? He's got to be from God. No matter how they presented themselves publicly to Jesus, they're in the background saying, man, this is clearly something God's doing. But the permanently blind heart will not give credit to God, will not believe in God, will not go that direction. It simply shuts it off and says, not you. We will not follow you. They wouldn't believe. That's spiritual blindness. There's another thing in this particular narrative that helps us understand what that condition looks like, and that is this. And this is the horrible part about this, church. Listen to me. This permanent spiritual blindness is terminal, at least as far as the Pharisees are concerned. Verse 12 and 13, and he sighed deeply in his spirit and said, why does this generation seek a sign? Truly, I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation, and he left them. That, that phrase, sigh deeply, in the original language is, uh, has a lot of emotion in it. It's as if Jesus uh, sighed to the deepest parts of his being as he looks up to heaven. It's like it crushed his heart to conclude that what these men dealt with was a condition they couldn't return from. Permanent blindness to him. The deepest kind of longing in Jesus makes that statement. He sighed deeply. Verse 12, he says this, this statement, truly I say to you, no sign will be given this generation. Um, in the Greek, uh, the original language, this, this is the strongest, most resolute way Jesus could have said what he's saying. There's not going to be a sign. You're asking for one? Like if, like if I could do something else and you would come running and come believing? No more signs. Not one more sign. In fact, the way that Jesus writes this, if you were to lay it out how he said it in the original language, is like over my dead body. There's not going to be a sign. It's over for you. It's, it's terminal. That, that's it. Now, to be fair, let's add in Matthew's account because Matthew adds in another phrase that Jesus says that kind of helps us even see more of this blindness. But Matthew's account in chapter 16, verse 4, Jesus says, an evil and adulterous generation seeks for sign. No sign will be given except, now this is a, seems like Jesus is contradicting himself in Matthew. He says, except for the sign of Jonah. Well, here's what Jesus' point was. It wasn't like he was concluding that the other sign would make a difference. He was just saying there was one more sign to come that you're going to deny. And that is the sign of Jonah. Just most of us know the story of Jonah. He was in the belly of the fish for three days. Jesus is using that as the analogy of him going to the grave and rising from the dead. Three days in the grave and come to life. And here's what happened with that story. That's the last sign. That's the one they looked at. That's the last thing he did. And what did they conclude? Here's what they concluded. The Pharisees got together with the guards who guarded the tomb, and they got together and made a plan. And here was their plan. Guards, let's lie about this, because people will believe in Jesus. Permanent spiritual blindness is terminal at some point. So terminal that a Pharisee can know that Jesus is risen, and the only conclusion to avoid him or them or anybody else believing is to create a lie to deceive people from trusting in who Jesus really is. And so Jesus simply says, no more, no more. You refuse, you refuse to believe. You refused to know. That's the point, I think, of this narrative. There are people, and I, I swear to you, I don't 
I don't know how God does what he does. I don't know how he plans where we are in particular narratives, but we're here on a day when there are hundreds of you here. Some of you might be here for the very first time, and you have no interest in being here except for the fact that somebody you love decided to get baptized, and you're going to come because you want to honor that. But if someone were to assess your heart, you would be considered someone who doesn't get it, doesn't want it, doesn't like it, it's offensive. In fact, you look at it and say, it's such a crutch. Weak people love that stuff. But the reality of this spiritual blindness, this kind of blindness, is that there's a, there's, a, there's a reality. If we continue to think that what we need is more information or more truth or more opportunity, it's not true. What you need, what you need is not something you can do, okay? What you need is this thing called faith. It's, just, I don't know, I'm going to digress a little bit. I'm kind of in no man's land, so I, I will ask for forgiveness before I say it. So what happened on Friday in our country with, with our Supreme Court deciding what marriage is? Okay, now, if there isn't a better depiction of what darkness does on its own, then you're, not, you're just not going to see it. You are the depiction of Romans 1. You know there's a God by what it's been made, but you've denied the truth, and you've turned the truth on its head, and you call now a lie the truth, and you call the truth a lie. That's how this goes. It's not that God has to show up and perform a boom miracle for you, and you'll go, okay, I just, I just didn't trust that you were sovereign. I didn't know you were powerful. I didn't know you were almighty and all existing. I didn't know that. You don't need that help. You need your heart changed. It's the trouble that Jesus talked about in chapter 7 when he said the condition of the heart is the problem. The heart is desperately wicked. It pushes against those things. And all I'm telling you is this. Stop asking for proof. Ask for faith. Stop asking God to do something that, that is unusual for you so that you can do things that you didn't think that you could do. I'm just telling you, if your heart has doubts, if your heart struggles with this thing, if you've used your whole life to accuse it of foolishness and ridiculousness, I get it. I get it. Apart from God, change it anybody's heart. That's what we do with the gospel. But if there's any crack, any little crack in your heart that thinks that possibly you could be wrong and that Jesus really was from, is God come from heaven to earth to give his life for you so that you can go free. If there's any crack in your heart for that, don't ask for some proof. Ask for faith. Ask him to make your heart want him and he will do that. He will, he will do that. We got to hurry now. This last story, there's things to learn in this about the temporary condition of blindness. Verses 14 through 21, by the way, this is for everybody. This is for Christians. This is for disciples. This is for people who follow Jesus. Our condition, although we're not totally blind and we're not in this condition of terminal blind, we are still in this condition of temporarily blind, okay? And so here's how it goes down. Chapter 8, verse 14. Now they had, gotten to, they had forgotten to bring bread and they had only one loaf with them in the boat. And he cautioned them, that's Jesus, saying, watch out, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. And they began discussing with one another the fact that they had no bread. And Jesus, aware of this, said to them, why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Having eyes, do you not see? And having ears, do you not hear? Do you not remember? When I broke the five loaves for the 5,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? And they said to him, twelve. And the seven for the 4,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did, did you take up? And they said to him, seven. And he said to them, 
Do you not yet understand? So, so let, let me draw out to you for us the lessons I think learned from this condition the Pharisees struggle with, or the disciples struggle with, that we struggle with, and that is this condition of temporary blindness. The first thing I think you should notice is that it is the nature of those with limited sight to not see many things or hear many of the things that God is doing. Miss it completely. Didn't see it, didn't know it. I've got to be a little bit careful not to seem too arrogant here, but how in the heck do disciples get here? Like, I had to picture myself. Like, I just saw you heal the man that couldn't hear. I just saw you free that girl from this demon possession. I just saw you feed from nothing 20,000 people. What's your question? Okay? And yet the disciples are looking around, man, we got nothing to eat. We're going we're to starve to death. Ridiculous. And Jesus drops this warning on them. Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Herod. And the first thing the disciples thought of was flatbread. I don't get it. But it's true of us. Let's just, I mean, I know we're laughing. But because of this temporary blurry condition that we all struggle with, don't we do it too? Like the Bible can say volumes about you and what you struggle with and it can talk about your sin and what will, what will the natural heart do? It'll, it'll, find a, it'll find a condition. It'll give it a name. I won't call it sin. It'll, it, it, needs, it needs this kind of help or it needs this kind of word to define it. Or, or this happens, how often does this happen when you're hearing a sermon and you go, man, I wish Joe was here because Joe could really use this sermon. How many of us love hearing sermons for other people? Everybody does, right? It is so hilarious to me. This clearly isn't applying to me. What's for lunch? <laughs> who, who, what are we going to do next? It, it just is amazing to me that the disciples get here. And, by the way, Jesus is talking about something totally different than bread, but even if he was talking about bread, weren't you there on the hillside in Galilee, weren't you there when 25,000 people ate from basically a few loaves? Weren't you there when we took up more leftovers than we had to start with? Weren't you there when we were in the Gentile land and we fed 20,000 people? Weren't you there? So if you had a need, what are you asking the question for? And that's like us too, isn't it? The blurry part of our faith. The blurry part of being a Christian as a disciple of Christ is that, yeah, we know some things, but when we're in the crisis, we forget those things, don't we? Isn't that true of us? We as God's people have a tendency to forget God's past provisions in our present crisis. That just happens. Like, I know he delivers on his promise. He made this deal. Like He's good. He can't break his promise. He can't break his character. And he promised to meet my needs. He gets to decide what the needs are, by the way, but he promised to, to meet them. But what happens when I hit the fan, when some crisis happens, some sickness happens, some needs happen, we just simply say, well, God, I got to freak out because I don't trust you. That's what I'm going to do. I'll, be, I'll worry, and I know you said not to worry, but it's how I do this. I'm going to worry. I'm going to stress because I don't believe you. Well, that's the blurry thing. That is walking, knowing that you're saved by grace alone, and yet not knowing or really truly believing all the things that that implies. It's the temporary blindness of the, of the heart. I think there's another lesson to be learned in this, and that is that we are still susceptible to the influence of the permanently blind. 
This is the warning in verse 15 that Jesus gives when he says, heads up on the leaven of the Pharisees. Now, I'm not a baker, but let's just talk about yeast for a little bit, the leaven, okay? Uh, Yeast, uh, those who talk about it in a kind of scientific way would say it is a bacterial corruption of dough. It is a way to ferment the dough. I, I know this simple much about yeast in bread. Once yeast gets in it, you can't get it out, and, and it affects everything. That's what I know about it, very simple, and I think that's the analogy. Jesus using heads up on that influence in your life, on the Pharisees and Herod, heads up on, on that kind of influence. Matthew adds, by the way, the other group of people, the Sadducees. So in this description of Jesus, of warning to his people, the people who are temporarily blind, can't see very clearly, he says, I want you to be careful of the Pharisees' influence and the Sadducees' influence and Herod's influence. So let's just unpack that just for a second to see how it fits in our culture. If, the, if we're going to take this warning seriously about the Pharisees' leaven or their influence on our life, then here's what Jesus is saying. Be very, 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 very careful about your self-righteousness. Good Christian person, be very, very, very careful that you don't break your arm to pat yourself on the back for all the things God is doing. Be very careful not to think more highly of yourself than you ought. Be very careful to find your hope in what you do. Be very careful to love another gospel, the gospel of man. Be very careful. He says, be, be careful, be, be warned about the Sadducees. If the Sadducees are like us, then it's very simple. Be very careful about your compromise. The church doesn't like to talk about holiness much, but it's clearly a part of the scriptures. Jesus saved us to set us apart. The set-apart idea is holiness, okay? Here's what I'm saying to you. None of us are holy, and none of us have the obligation to fix our problems with our holiness. But here's what I know about the gospel. God saves people unto transformation. So when he saves us, we're laying down our life all the time and confessing our sin all the time, and we're becoming a set-apart people over time. Not to perfection. Well, we have to get the glory before we get that. But here's what the church does. The modern church has said, holiness doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. And this is a tension about preaching grace. I want to preach grace so hard and so scandalous that it bothers everybody. At the same time, I don't want you to get confused and think that somehow holiness doesn't matter. Because it does. It's the tension of saying, it's all free, not of you. You can't do anything to earn it and you can't do anything to lose it. But God saves people he changes to. And you need to lay down your life and take up your cross and follow Jesus. And you need to say no to sin and ungodliness because he gives you the power to do so. The resurrected power of Jesus kills the old person. If you're going to be, take the warning of Herod, it's just simply power control. And if we're going to unpack that, if you're one of those people who live outside of faith, you don't have faith. You don't need faith. You know why? Because you're strong enough. You've got enough in your pockets. You're powerful enough. You're in control enough. You don't need faith. You can manage it. Heads up. If you're in your life and you have everything you need apart from God to cope with your life, beware. Beware. Okay. Let me move on to the last point. For the temporarily blind, we are dependent on the Spirit of God to see anything. Not some things, but church, if you're a follower of Christ, you won't see anything unless the Spirit of God lets you see it. You don't have perceptivity on your own. Mark ends with a question 
do you not understand? Matthew kind of fills in more for us when he says, and then they did understand. I suppose nine heavy-duty, punch-you-in-the-eye kind of questions from Jesus. Are you kidding me? Are you kidding me? And finally, oh, yeah, you weren't talking about bread. You were talking about other things. And then they understood, right? Here's what what I want to say. Our only hope to understand and discern and know and love God's gospel, that sin can be forgiven and you can walk free, is if the Spirit of God tells you and opens your eyes to see it. If you're going to know anything about His grace, like truly grace, if you're sitting in this room today and you're just littered with sin and failure, like you can't get out of your own way, the only way you can ever believe to the core that God's grace covers that is through the Spirit of God. The only way to know truth, to pick this up and have it make any sense, if it was foolishness and it's not anymore, it's the Spirit of God. It's the only way. And I think there's a couple of, you know, so what's to even that part of it. Just a reminder, because we walk around temporarily blurry blinded, it it involves time. What we know, it takes time. We'll see more as time goes on. God is faithful to reveal to us. Isn't that true, Christian? If you've walked with Jesus for 10 years, 15, 20 years, don't you perceive, know more about who Jesus is than you used to believe? Well, that's him teaching over time. And then let me just caution you with his last thing, okay? It's never going to be crystal clear. In our humility, we have to say, that there's so much in this, there's so much that God is and what he will do that I, there's no way anybody can, I don't care who your favorite internet preacher is, nobody's got it all, okay? They, they just, just don't. Um, so here's the reality of it. Walk humbly and just believe that God is faithful, God is good, and God is true. Whatever we don't know, whatever we can't make out, whatever he's doing in your life or what you perceive to him not doing in your life, just believe his character, that he, he is good and he can't help himself and he loves you. Amen? Let's pray together. I thank you, Father, for this gospel truth every week that in Jesus we are free. I thank you that this illustration reveals to us our condition before Christ, our condition after Christ, and, and the conclusion of our hearts when we're all done with it is that Jesus is to be praised. We give you honor and glory, and we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.